Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Uh, did you, so what did you end up doing? Did you see anything good over your, uh, any, and I mean like judiciously, I know you saw everything in over the holidays and your recuperation, but did you see anything worth talking about? Um, you know, I, I saw, um, I, I think we've talked about it in the back channels, but I watched the whole run of black mirror. Oh, so good. Right. Great, great TV. Just fantastic stuff to watch. Anyone who has not seen Black Mirror should go out and, and watch it all. It's all streaming on Netflix. Just wacky stuff. It is. It's which one was your favorite? So there, there are only six episodes. Thankfully, the Brits, or I, I don't know if this is thankfully or regretfully, the Brits are show great restraint when they're doing these series. Yeah, they so do. Two they're seasons really... of three episodes each. Right, and then they did a Christmas episode, which I uh, <laughs> have not been able episode. to see yet. So, Me neither. Yeah. So, which was your favorite of the six? Uh, you know, I don't know which one I would say is my favorite. The 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 two that stick with me, and I I don't remember the the episode names, but obviously the first one is pretty hard to forget mm-hmm. with the pig. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one that sticks with me is the one with the um, uh, where her husband dies. And she signs up for that service where she starts getting emails from her husband and then phone calls. Yeah, that calls. was like uh, season two, the first yeah. one of season two. Very, uh, I don't know, it really stuck with me. It was very haunting. And um, there's something very creepy about that whole story. And the ending, I thought, was just uh, very solid. I, I, you know, just very smart writing, very smart uh, directing, and, and uh, very... Uh, uh, just the way that they tell the stories, it's it's very efficient and clean, and um, I just was really fascinated by by the shows. So oh, truly, truly, yeah. truly, uh, I'm with you. My favorite one, I think, the one that sticks with me the most is the third one of season one, the memory uh, implant episode, which Ooh, I, I found yeah. just fantastic. Um, that one was great too. Yeah, it was really good. Um. But of course, the media one, the second one of season one, I thought was really terrific too. That the whole idea of of you know working for those, you know, going to work every day means go ride a stationary bike to power a city for the elite is pretty <laughs> right. stunning. Uh, yeah, it was a neat neat approach. Yeah, very interesting stuff. I yeah. I, I highly recommend all of the episodes. Uh, anything else? Any other news? Nothing. Uh, well, I, I saw a lot of uh, Oscar picks, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing um, seeing how it all shakes out when the big, uh, you know, all the awards start showering down upon everybody. Mm. Me too. That should be fun. You know what I did? I saw. Let's see. What I, I did a James Bond, a late series James Bond. I did the all the Daniel Craig's back to back. This was we went to Costa Rica right for the holiday, mm-hmm. and uh, this is my airplane fodder. I actually came away liking all three of those films more than I originally did. 
I had yeah. a great time with those movies. Part even uh, the one, uh, the desert quantum one. of solace. Quantum of solace. I, it's, I think it's a very enjoyable film. It is I a think. very enjoyable film. It's 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 uh, I don't know it's unjustly maligned I think I enjoy it quite a bit. That is the word, my friend. I totally agree with you. I I walked away thinking this this really works, and I think the way uh, the way they jump into that film, uh, the 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 transition, and maybe it works even better when you watch um, you know Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace back to back. But that trans that transition between the two films is perfect. Yeah. It's just perfect. So, yeah, jump right in in a car chase and wrap yeah. it all up. They all it, the, and all three of them work really, really well together. The, his whole uh, his, the whole transition from M to M uh, is it works really, really well. I like him much better. That's oh, all. good. That's all. This is me getting ready for Bond Twenty Four. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Let's tell the people where we're from. Yeah, where are we from? <laughs> This is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight, on this very show, we launch our first uh, official series of 2015 uh, with the early works of Sir Alec Guinness. Two N's, mm-hmm. two S's. Before we get into that, you should head over and learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're among the few, proud. The Instagrammers. You can join us there and play the Instagram Pony Prize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. Starting a whole new thing here in 2015. Whole new round are, because we have a big yeah. winner. Comes on the heels of our very first big winner, woman who dominated the charts last year, Cameron L. Ryan. Mm-hmm. Andy, uh, do you, do you know off the top of your head uh, what she what she won? Uh, there, yeah, there's a big old list. We posted it over on uh, on our blog actually, but uh, yeah, it does include. Uh, let's see, she gets to be the first uh, listener's choice uh, um, or listener to pick a, a listener's choice episode for us this year, which is going to be happen right after our Alec Guinness series. Um, she gets one of our brand new shirts, which we are uh, thrilled to be. Uh, uh, Getting out into the world. It is. Um, it's in the wind. It's already yes. in the. It's already shipped. We made a uh, donation in her name to the Film Foundation, which is Martin Scorsese's great um, nonprofit that preserves films, and uh, and then they also provided a couple um, newly restored films on DVD for her. Uh, and just a whole slew of other things, uh, all the way down to a little tiny pony. <laughs> So there's a there's a lot of other stuff. We've got other films. We've got you know one that I'm I'm particularly excited about. She uh, she picked a uh, a, a genre, and we included a series of five films with custom uh, custom. I'm sure that's not the word I'm looking for. <laughs> personally uh, personal, curated. Yes, personally yeah. curated by uh, the one the only Tommy Handsome, and she yeah. chose of course horror, and that's that's right up his alley. So I think she's going to get a wonderful collection of horror films with Tommy's endorsement and review of each. So very exciting. Uh, that's going to be a very exciting one. Uh, so lots of great stuff. And so we are, we're uh, still doing it. We are still doing it. And Cameron L. Ryan is the one to beat. There is a big Instagram target right on, on Cameron L. Ryan's account because she just, uh, she, she does a heck of a job with that contest. She is still going to be playing and, uh, and can still compete. And the way we're doing it for past winners, if you've already won and you win a second year in a row, 
we're going to give you the year the shirt for that year and then the the big prize pony prize winner is the second place person right does that does that make any sense at all did i say that right that makes pretty good sense <laughs> <laughs> don't overthink it so uh in uh, finally don't forget as we mentioned if you haven't visited the com and clicked on the little t-shirt in the sidebar to order your very own uh 2014 commemorative next reel shirt custom art by the fantastic jomiha mm-hmm. uh you should do so right away they're not going to be around forever i think probably a couple more weeks we'll leave those up there and then they will be gone have you gone. ordered yours yet i have it right right here in my uh my house You've you've received it already. Yes, I just got it the other day. Oh, nuts! I'm very excited. It we looks were, great. Does it really? Yes. We were out of the country, and so I just ordered mine yesterday, uh, and so I'm very sad I don't have them yet. But they're on the way. I got one for everybody, and I actually had to sh- I had to lie mm-hmm. to our provider because you know you can't actually you know Jomiha, our dear friend and artist friend of the show. You know, one of the one of the little things he, one of the little pieces of art, one of the little slides he put on the film is is of, um, you know, it's from Seven and it has a gun, mm. and you know we would not have been able to to make kids shirt, kids shirts, oh, if, oh, because it has a gun on it, and so I I, I checked the little box that said no, there are no guns on here. Thank thank oh, goodness it's all curated by dumb robots. who don't know how to read or see Uh, and so I ordered my kids shirts my kids are going to be walking around with guns on their chest but it's from 7 and so that's okay that's okay the guns in 7 that's fine there are lots of options you can get like a scoop neck or a v-neck or a women's cut or a men's cut or whatever you want of a cut there are lots of cuts lots of colors go get your shirt lots of colors we prefer gray that's all. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna get a different color, and then I opted to just go with the gray. Well, you got to get the gray, and if you want another color, you get another color too. Right. Yeah. That's right. the only way to do it. How'd we do this week? This week, this was a, this was a, a pretty good week. Um, it was uh, Fritz Lang's uh, 1944 film, Ministry of Fear, and we had a nice variety of images that popped up on this, and it was, I believe, the one, two, three, fourth image in. And it was the little tip of the hat that uh, that uh, Ray Milland does in the photo there that gave it away to Paz Malti, who ended up uh, getting the, getting it. And uh, Paz Malti is now entered to win this year's Pony Prize. Right out of the gate. Strong start. Mm. Paz Malti. Excellent. Excellent. I love it. Uh, and with that, Andrew, mm-hmm. let's do trailers. <laughs> I, I'm going to kick it off with this one. Do it. I'm going to do it. It is weirdly close to home. Uh, but it, And it also happens to be kind of an homage to North Korea. It is a James Franco film. <laughs> <laughs> True story starring Franco and Jonah Hill. It, it's sort of a—this is a roundabout story of Christian Longo. It's a, He's a Portland guy who killed his wife and three children back in 2001. It was a whole big thing uh, back in the day uh, around these parts. Uh, but the story actually centers on Michael Finkel, who's a journalist. He was once employed by the New York Times. Turns out Finkel was fired from the Times for being a fabulist. Uh, so here comes Longo, who starts calling himself Michael Finkel while he's on the run. 
which kicks off this crazy relationship between Longo and Finkel, who is, of course, looking for this one great shot to redeem his career with a great story to report on. So I have this hot and cold relationship with Franco's performances, but I do think he has a a real strength at playing the gently psychotic, and I really get that vibe in this trailer. I don't have that same relationship with Jonah Hill. That guy is just great all around. I'm really excited to see what he does here. Film is directed by Rupert Gould, who also wrote the screenplay based on uh, Finkel's memoir. Uh, it's Gould's, as far as I can find, it's Gould's first feature film, though he comes off a, a string of really what looked to be ambitious Broadway works. Uh, he directed Patrick Stewart in this hip revival of Macbeth. Uh, and of course, my favorite, uh, a London collaboration with musician Duncan Sheik to direct Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho as a musical thriller. And the music wow. is really, really creepy, <laughs> which is also kind of an homage to the film we're doing tonight. Uh, true, uh, true story opens in the U S January 23rd in wide release. Uh, what'd you think? I think it looks good. I hadn't heard of it, but, uh, watching the trailer and seeing the uh, performances, I was like, you know, this, this looks actually pretty good. And, um, I, you know, I'm right there with you as far as Jonah Hill goes. I mean, he's, as long as it's not like the babysitter sort of material, I'm happy to watch Jonah Hill act. Mm-hmm. The, um, I think he brings a lot to the table, and I think that uh, you know he's he's he started in in dumb comedies, and I think it's easy to get trapped in that world. And I think he's he's found the right films to help transition out of that a little bit, even though he still jumps back into it um, often. Conscious uh, choice, man. Conscious yeah, choice. Exactly. But uh, this looks like uh, it's you know a great opportunity for him to kind of show his stuff a little bit more, and I'm quite excited. Oh, me too. I was glad to find this one. It's really snuck up on me, Come and, and that it opens so soon. I can't believe I hadn't seen the trailer for this one. Yeah, I mean, it always makes me nervous when things open in January, but uh, yeah. I, I still thought it, it, you know, it looked pretty good. I think so, too. All hail. True story. Your turn. Mine is not a true story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Segway. <laughs> uh, it, it's called Black or White, and uh, the trailer has been out for uh, you know a good number of weeks now. And it's another film opening in January, so you know there's always that. It's got your favorite uh, two by four in it, uh, Kevin Costner. Um, there's a lot of things that uh, that potentially look bad about this film, and it very likely could be. Um, it's uh, uh, Kevin Costner is a, a, the grandfather of this uh, this little girl. He his uh, his wife has died. And uh, the um, uh, he basically he's in this trapped in kind of a custody battle with this young girl's other mother, um, and it's a it's his granddaughter is African American, the other family is African American, they're an actual family, and so there's this interesting kind of uh, pull between the two sides as they kind of fight over this little girl. Um, it's kind of a drama comedy. It uh, it looks like it could be bad. Octavia Spencer's in it. I think she's fantastic. Um, the thing that kind of sells me on it, uh, as opposed to any other film trailer like this that I would see that would just look like just schlock, is the fact that Mike Binder is uh, the director, the writer director on it, and he uh, he's I always find him a very interesting guy when he's making films. I really. Uh, enjoyed The Upside of Anger, a film that he made that came out in, I believe, 2005. 
it was a very kind of interesting story about a family dealing with uh, um, a husband that disappeared. And uh, that was just a very interesting movie. And I'm hoping that this is something like that. And uh, there's no telling. Like I said, it is a January film. It could be garbage. But I don't know. I'm just kind of I'm kind of crossing my fingers, hoping that there's a little more to it than that. I'm about to blow your mind. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I I also have watched this trailer a few times, and you're right. There's a lot of things in here. There are a lot of things in here that that uh, look like it could be bad. Two by four is not one of them. Hey, I think he looks great. I, I know. think he's, I... He, he really he comes off as just this uh, a really sort of charming curmudgeon that's just sort of right in the role. Like it feels a little bit like a hand to glove role for me. For, for him and I think you know where I stand on him I was very uh, excited to see him kind of playing this grandfather character I thought that was great yeah. to see. and I was very uh, uh, just the, the race relations between the two the way that it looks like they're going to play them I'm hoping that it all it all works out well for the for the team of people behind this one oh, me too and I'm quite excited to hear you say that I right I feel like I'm maturing I'm growing. <laughs> Let's do a Kevin Costner series now. I'm so excited. <laughs> we don't need to. Oh, 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 uh, uh, yes. Ah, mm. uh, yes. This one opens January 30th. All right. So that's well, mine. Go see mine first. <laughs> that's right. You know what I find, Andy? What do you, what's that? She's so difficult to make a neat job of killing people with whom one is not on friendly terms. We've been away the whole weekend. I had to go. What? See Mrs. Descorin, the widow of her cousin of mine was killed. All your cousins seem to get killed. I really wouldn't be the least surprised if you'd murdered them all. I do not like to see my ideal woman wasting her great value in vain regret for the past. It is your duty to yourself and to others, to Henry even, to live again in the present, in the future. What future is there for me? I'd say your nose was just a little too short. And your mouth? Yes, your mouth just a little too wide. When I've finished, I shall kill you. You will be the sixth Descartes that I've killed. It's clear that you are insane. Give me that gun at once. No. From here, I think the wound should look consistent with the story that I shall tell. Kind hearts and coronets, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Kind hearts and coronets. It hit us in 1949. Director Robert Hammer. Screenplay by Hammer and John Dighton. Based on the book, Israel Rank, the autobiography of a criminal. The film stars uh, the fantastic uh, Dennis Price, Valerie Hobson, Joan Greenwood, and of course... Alec Guinness, 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 and Alec Guinness. Can you give us a rundown of the story of Kind Arts and Coronets? And an, an appropriate answer is yes, but an acceptable answer is I hopelessly no. <laughs> of course I can. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go for it. Oh, in a horribly rambling way, I'm sure. Okay, so we have a poor relative, Louie who's uh, related to the Dascoin family. 
um, because of the way they disowned his mother when she fell in love with a uh, what was he? He was a musician. He was an opera singer. Yes, and because of the way they disowned her when she married beneath the family name, um, he and, and then they refused to let her be buried in the family plot. He decides that what he's going to do is murder the heirs to the Dascoigne uh, seat um, of the dukedom and uh, take it over, basically. And so we follow him as he uh, goes on a murdering rampage, killing the eight heirs that stand in front of him so that he can, uh, so that he can take the helm. That was, really, that? that was really, that was quite good. I wouldn't call it a murdering rampage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it wasn't. It was too British to be a rampage. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Maybe a murdering prance. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They don't quite rampage over there. <laughs> so that's what this movie is about, and it was a really uh, interesting bit of cosmic kismet. What do you think of that? Cosmic wow. kismet. I just pull these things out. You, of you just, and your wordplay. I, I'm a regular Jason Mraz. Uh, we we disco- we got the list of the blacklist films and uh, ended up um, running across this number thirty two, which is uh, high on the blacklist. This ends up being sort of number five uh, in popularity on the blacklist. Rothschild, a young, well educated loner, kills the members of his mother's estranged family one by one in hopes that he will inherit the family's vast fortune. That is the the tag for one of the films that is very popular right now. I feel like I should have just read that. I I (laughs) sort of feel like you should. And so I sent that to you because I don't think you had read it at the time. I I hadn't looked at the full And you hadn't seen the movie at the time, right? So by the time I I sent this to you. No, I hadn't rewatched this yet. So so I sent that to you. I said, hey, this is is a funny coincidence. And it turns out it's more than a coincidence uh, that the film Rothschild, written by John Patton Ford, is actually a revisioning of uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets with inspiration from some other films. And and you, in all of your uh, entrepreneurial gusto, uh, reached out to John Patton Ford uh, to see if he'd join us on the show. And how'd that go? It went great. (laughs) And And here he is. (laughs) Okay, we can do that better. (laughs) That's terrible. Uh, it's getting really late. Um, and so you, in all of your uh, editorial gusto, went out and reached out to John Pattenford and called him. And he is, turns out, is a really nice guy, and he has agreed to uh, join us on the show. And so uh, let's uh, let's go let's go over to the corner of the studio and talk to him. That's, in the corner, that, is yeah, he, yeah. Is he in trouble? That's the corner. It's our other because we have a giant studio, and that's where we go. Oh, because okay. do you I see the, vi- like are, the corner, like with the dunce cap? No, it's a studio it's in your trouble. mind's eye. You are you're a oh. filmmaker, man. <laughs> Crying out loud, try to keep up. And tonight we actually have a uh, a special guest uh, to talk to. It's uh, his name is uh, John Patton Ford, a writer director who actually has written an updated version of Kind Hearts and Coronets that actually is on uh, 2014's Blacklist, all the top scripts of the year. So uh, welcome, John. Hi. Thanks for having me. Kind Hearts and Coronets. How did you come across it, and how did you end up deciding, hey, this is an interesting story that uh, could use a retelling? Yeah, you know, I think it started with, like, um, 
sheer frustration. I've been um, working in Los Angeles for a while since film school, trying to get stuff off the ground and shooting commercials and things like that and just sort of scraping by with very little money as people tend to do in the, in this industry for a while. And then a friend of mine, uh, a cinematographer friend of mine got like the whole criterion collection on DVD, which wow, would make her like the last, the last person to ever buy DVD. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she would have these weekly screenings of just like obscure, cool, random movies, at her house. And, uh, that's how I saw Contact and Coronets. I'd never heard of it before. I wasn't aware of it. And uh, this was maybe two years ago, maybe a little less than two years. And so I went over and I watched it and I'm blown away because it's so contemporary. I mean, you can't believe it came out in 1949. It's just crazy, the sense of irony that it has and the kind of speed of the humor and the dryness of it. And maybe a big part of it is the fact that it's British and there's something more modern about old British humor. When you see it, it feels more like what our humor is now. But um, I was just really taken with it. I guess the other thing is that I was looking for a story about that frustration that I was talking about earlier, you know, of mm-hmm. what, can, what can I tell that's kind of relevant for my generation that's sort of about someone who's in a ton of student debt and works really hard, but is suddenly kind of just pooped into this world where you know, you may have been better off not going to college, <laughs> as scary <laughs> as it is to say. And so I came across the story and I thought, oh, you can you can kind of make a current version of this that instead of being about the British class system, is about sort of this emerging American class system that we have, which we haven't really, like, I don't know if, if you could really have done that maybe 20 or 25 years ago. People would have just scratched their heads. But I think now you could have a movie that takes place in the United States in the current day and have uh, just as kind of a rigid of a class system as a, as a kind of acting coronet on. I, I guess I, a big, go on. No, 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 I'm sorry. You finish your, finish your thought. Oh, I've been rambling for a while now, but I think people have been trying to remake that for a long time. You know, like Mike Nichols tried to remake it. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. No, no one knew that until I wrote a script and then I got a very, uh, passionate call from Mike Nichols' attorney. Um, (laughs) And the thing, yeah, exactly. I think the best part is that after the blacklist came out, the first phone call we got was from this attorney with a weird accent from Rotterdam who represented the actual Rothschild family, demanding to know what what the hell was going on. Wow. So people have been trying to remake uh, Kind Hearts is such a timeless, cool story, and so is Israel Lang, the book that it's based on. Uh, and I think people have been trying to remake that in the States for a long time, and it's just never quite worked. There's something really interesting you can tie in with the whole 1% that, that is very modern that's kind of burst forth that uh, I think you can you know, use to your advantage. It's totally true. And, you know, I don't mean to, like, vilify the 1%. I don't totally buy into that whole thing, and I'm not here to really comment on that. But people... Just the country as a whole has kind of a lot of angst, I think, about that in a way that they didn't maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, and so suddenly that kind of story is relevant now in a way that just wasn't previously. You know, when you went back to take on this this particular project, can you talk a little bit about the um, about your process, about you know how you dive into doing kind of a an update, a reimagining of, of such a timeless story? Sure. I can't really tell you about what my regular process is because it's all, it's different kind of every time. But uh, this time it was just like 
sort of a bolt of lightning. That's a terrible metaphor, but that's really what it was. I saw kind hearts and I was just like, oh, of course, you know, it's so obvious. <laughs> of course, you just look at it and you're like, oh my God, everything, it's just all, it all works. And so um, it became a matter of finding contemporary counterparts to all of these archetypes who are in kind hearts and coronets. There's a, a religious person, there's like a military person, there's a just a young, rich kind of douche, for lack of a better term. And so it was like finding, <laughs> finding, finding like our 2013 version of these people. That was a lot of the fun. I ended up changing um, nearly everything. And in fact, I've only seen Kind Hearts and Cornets once. I only saw it that one time. Wow. And then I just thought about it for months and months and just kind of marinated. And then I kind of just started writing based upon my imagined memory of the movie. If I went back and watched it, I'd probably be I'd, I'd probably be struck by how much stuff I forgot or how many things I kind of invented for myself. <laughs> but uh, really just taking that core concept. I think also the sense of humor and the sense of fun that it has. You could very easily make a serious movie about someone who kills off the members of their estranged family to kind of get the reward. But oh, the fact that it doesn't have humor is just, that's the ticket, you know? That's what makes it digestible. The the film, uh, obviously, the original Kind Hearts is so well known for uh, Alec Guinness's portrayal of, of the Descoyne family. Sure. Did you? Uh, do you, yeah. are you going for any uh, uh, recommended character gimmicks in, in the production of, of your script? No, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think tonally, <laughs> tonally, it's a little bit different. Those, those early Ewing comedies. Uh, they had a little bit more headroom for that kind of thing. They had a bit more headroom. Uh, you know, if you really want to get Hollywood about it. Um, people have had a hard time remaking a lot of Ealing comedies. For instance, the Coen brothers made Lady Killers, which is probably the biggest right. failure of their career. Yes. And what they did is they tried to remake it shot for shot, and it only proved that it just doesn't work on contemporary right. audiences. We have a sense of realism, a demand for realism now that people just didn't before, for whatever reason. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so now, but the interesting thing about the fact that they use Ali Guinness for all of those roles is it just makes it morally easy for the audience to digest because you have this central character who kills somebody and it's like, holy crap. And then suddenly that same person kind of comes back 10 minutes later and it makes right. it just a little easier to forgive the central character. You know, it makes it kind of lets you know, like, listen, this isn't real. It's a movie. Chill out. Yeah. Uh, I think audiences today wouldn't be delighted in that. Like they were in 1949. They would just be frustrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be like no we would really like to see that person get killed please show us <laughs> <laughs> talk a little bit about the the uh the blacklist your experience uh making it on the blacklist you know i've been i've been uh directing commercials and writing really small contained scripts that i hope i can make myself and i had a bunch of different projects i still have a bunch of different projects in different stages of development and um I wrote Rothschild on spec. I just, it was the easiest thing I ever wrote. I just blew through it in like five, four or five weeks or something. And that was maybe earlier in 2014. And then just, I went around town and a lot of people read it and I knew it was going to be on the list. But I didn't know it would be like number five. I thought it would be in the middle somewhere. Um, and that was only recently, I guess the list came out mid December and Hollywood kind of goes to sleep for about three weeks in December. Just no one's, no one's there. So it was like, whoa, I'm on the blacklist, and then nobody's in L.A. <laughs> no phone calls being made. <laughs> so I was like, all right. I got, and then like Monday, Monday of this week was like the first day of school, and suddenly everyone's back, and it's been kind of madness. But, you know, 
when you get on the blacklist traditionally, the cool thing is like you get an agent or you get a financier or you get a big producer. And I'm, I'm fortunate in the sense that I've, I really already had all those things going. So what it does for me specifically is that it, it, it hopefully gives the project some urgency and will force people to make decisions quicker rather than slower. Mm-hmm. For instance, we're trying to find a director now because I'm not going to direct this. Uh, and an actor and being on the blacklist just kind of it gives you leverage it allows you to call some of the agents and be like well they got to read it by Friday because it's on the blacklist you know like suddenly you could say that so that's oh, that's nice. sort of what it does well this you know man seriously uh, thank you so much for jumping on and congratulations D- deep congratulations for hitting the blacklist and and uh, you know it was it was a real treat I mean it, it, a complete accident that we stumbled on on the uh, on the tag for Rothschild on the blacklist, and uh, just had to hear your story. So, congratulations and thanks for taking a few minutes to to talk with us on uh, on the show. I'm so glad you guys were were uh, yeah excited about it and not uh, not upset that I had uh, you know ripped off a movie or something. <laughs> we we're, we're not those everybody guys. in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, it. we're not those guys. <laughs> Okay. Uh, <laughs> now we're thrilled, and hopefully we can have you back on the show once it's made. Yeah. Oh, that would be. Let's uh, dare to dream. Uh, hey, anyway. we'll put it on the calendar. Now that was uh, that was John Patton Ford. He is a, a wonderfully charming fellow. You can find more about John Patton Ford at johnpattonford.com. Uh, where you can see his commercials and music videos that he has done and and um, uh, reach out to him should you feel so inclined. And now, uh, let's continue. It's a weirdly charming romp about politics, class struggle, and serial murder. That's that's really, for, for <laughs> me, that's where it comes down. Uh, but But thankfully, just about everybody in the film keeps themselves in jolly high spirits, don't you think? Like, they really do. They really do. Uh, I, I think here that um, uh, Dennis Price is perfect as uh, Louis Manzini. He's, his sort of jilted lower-class revenge story is just perfect crafted here uh, this that uh, this is a film where the narration his narration works perfectly it's designed around his narration as he's reading his memoirs to lead us on this journey through his um, through his murders and it is the whole film is told in a flashback it we open when he's already on death row for a crime that we we don't we, we don't have a clear understanding of. Um, and uh, we're following sort of the hangman as he's assessing Louis Manzini uh, and his neck. But then we, we get into this uh, narration, which brings us so smoothly into his journey. It engenders such a buy-in from us that his cause is righteous, that it's easy to forget that he is, at the same time, the really, really bad guy. He kills a lot of people, but we don't ever really think about that. Uh, and so after all these murders, his his false conviction and release at the end of the film, we watch him walk out of the uh, of the gates as the as as the, um, you know, sort of the hero once again. And we feel with him that kick in the stomach that comes when he realizes uh, he has, in fact, duped himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and 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 so we get to hurt for him and we get our own sense of redemption uh, in in the film's resolution, in in the same breath, and I, I think that really works well. It's sort of an antique uh, vision of of this story, but I think it's it it really does hold up in a and 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 does so in a way that's charming and frankly works for for a lot of ages. I watch this with my daughter, and uh, you know she is twelve, 
and she loved it, uh, which stunned me. I was surprised she'd even make it through it, but she she loved it. So That's fantastic. Uh, the film really holds up well, and I I, I think it just it, it it has a really charming uh, charming tale. It's brilliant the way that it plays with the protagonist in a way that you. Uh, like you said, what he's doing is despicable. I mean, he basically sets out to kill eight people so that he can uh, take revenge and and basically uh, become the heir of the for- family fortune. It's it, I mean, it's it's a horrible thing. I mean, it's you're you're watching this person go through killing all these people just so he can, and, and and even even the ones that he doesn't kill, you can sense that thrill that he doesn't have to deal with them anymore. Like mm-hmm. the two kids who end up, uh, the two babies the, that are just born, the twins that end up dying of a diphtheria outbreak or something, I believe. And it's just his, it's almost like a little bit of joy as he kind of crosses them off of his, uh, the big family tree chart that he has. It's, uh, it's, he's so despicable, but there is something so charming about him. And the story is, is so smartly told in a way that sets up him, uh, where you, you kind of, uh, feel for him a little bit in this, in this way where this, uh, this, family of these awful people particularly the the duke who is the one who uh disinherits the mother who won't let her be buried there and and just is very uh, unresponsive to their letters all of that um just very rude aristocratic uh pompous british ass i guess you could kind of say and you can get a sense that that louis in a way is justified in his uh anger and his frustration at being uh, tossed out, and um, you kind of feel for him. You feel for the underdog. You feel for the little guy, and it's not. It's just smart in the way that it's told, where you are wrapped into the story through the underdog who happens to set out to kill everybody so that he can uh, come out on top. And it's it's dark when you really step back and and think about what the story is doing and how it's it's tying you in to like this guy who is committing murder murders <laughs> murders uh yes <laughs> absolutely absolutely um the the murderer uh dennis price uh, playing uh louis manzini i um he is um every bit the charmer that i wanted um you know cary grant to be in our holiday film this year like it was it it, it was I really enjoyed watching watching his pompousness, uh, and and I think m- much of that comes from his own background. I mean, he was born an aristocrat uh, in in Britain. I mean, this is a guy who knows from uh, from whence he came. Um, at least he knew what he was aspiring to in this character. I think. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. He uh, he plays it so well. He plays it um, so. There's that. It's just that. He comes across as an aristocrat, even though he's not necessarily playing an aristocrat. But he just has that sense of um, of of uh, place where he can get away with it because he uh, just kind of he, he has the air about him. His first meeting with uh, the younger Lord Dascoin in the uh, ladies' undergarments store. Mm-hmm. Uh he comes off with a sense of arrogance and propriety that outdoes uh, Alec Guinness's introduction in that scene. Um 
and and you know in the the arc of the story he's fired for for responding with impetuousness but but you know he is you can tell he just towers over the scene i mean every frame in which he stands up that 62 frame of of price just dominates um and and i think it's it it you know somehow he is able to soften that uh you know that that arrogance enough that we still like him that he's funny and charming and now he's dealing not only with the plot to murder all these people but now he's juggling potential girlfriends uh that um uh, that it ends up sort of winning us over through his personality alone yeah yeah which you really bank on in a film like this i mean yeah. if it was a if it was an actor who you had a harder time connecting with i mean the story wouldn't have worked nearly as well as it does or i think an actor you know i bring up the Cary grant reference because i think his you know one of the, my qualms with the uh, the bishop's wife his his portrayal on the bishop's wife is that you know he came off as Cary Grant, and and obviously that was a big sale for that film. But this, this I I think um, you know, this approach ends up being just uh, um, sort of pantomime enough that we we believe that this is a character and not somebody just plotting through as a name. Uh, and I I really appreciate his his role here as as sort of the class jilted uh, suitor. Absolutely, uh, the ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, the first uh, lady we have on the mark is uh, uh, plays the character's strangest name. I think I've heard Sibella. Mm, uh, Sibella, Joan, yeah. Joan Greenwood, the lovely Joan Greenwood. Who also is in The Man in the White Suit with Alec. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think of her in this film? She is young and flamboyant and... She's 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 a flippity-gibbet. She and and there's this impetuousness about her yeah. that I I mean I I would I was struggling trying to think like who is the Joan Greenwood uh today? Like who could pull off a role like this? I don't know who it is, but there was something about Joan Greenwood in this film that was so captivating. And just, just this—I uh, don't know—it's there's a little hint of maliciousness, and just the way that she plays it um, and plays him and everything, especially toward the end of the film. Uh, I just was in love with her. Now you've got me thinking about who could do it. Did you come up with anybody? I'm thinking. I haven't. I'm thinking haven't. like Reese Witherspoon. Mm. No. Uh, I, you I know, mean, she had that whole Cruel Intentions era, which was she was a little young yeah, to really play true. that with maturity. But uh, that's why I can kind of visualize her in the role. Yeah, she well, she did. She did have that. But yeah, it's like who who is that person today who could really kind of come across? Uh, I mean, I, I think there's probably a lot of actresses who could. But uh, I mean, Jennifer Lawrence, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, I don't know. She was pretty impressive in uh, uh, American Hustle. She uh, had that's true. kind of. Uh, I, hey, you know, you bring up. I'm. I would say Amy Adams might be one. Uh, oh, there's an interesting one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She had an interesting turn in uh, the Master. Because there's that. Yeah, I, exactly. There's that sense of like um, impetuousness and frivolousness and, um, and just a little bit of a dominatrix. <laughs> Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I, and I, I anyway, back to Joan Greenwood, I think her portrayal in this film is really fascinating. And I think she's a um, she is um, really the consummate tease uh, for uh, poor Lord 
wannabe. Um, and, and yet she's delightful to watch with him. And I, you know, there is a, there's a, a bit of me that really wanted them to end up together and to, to end up together more sort of smoothly. Um, but the, their storyline ended up corrupted as, as did just about every relationship arc in this film. Yeah, it does. But, uh, at the same time, there is a sense that they, uh, are meant to be together. <laughs> Yeah, it's just that uh, their their own their uh, they each have their own uh, terrible way about them, and it's uh, they they do seem like they're they're more appropriately appropriately paired than if he ended up with uh, Valerie Hobson. That is the truth. That is the truth. And as it turns out, in in one particular twist, as they end up uh, sort of blackmailing each other um, into uh, to to sort of twist the plot to their own devices uh we get to see who she really is and and her own sort of not necessarily regrets but machinations behind her marrying the most boring man in london in all (laughs) of europe um which which i think was just wonderful yes absolutely uh you mentioned uh valerie hobson Mm -hmm. as the lovely edith dascoin uh, she is the uh, widowed. She plays the widowed spouse of one of the the young foppish Dascoin, right? Uh, the young photographer who <laughs> blows himself up. <laughs> <laughs> A relatively likable version. I mean, he, yes, you know, it was kind of sad to see him go. The, it, he was the one that I was sad to see go. Yes, uh, uh, you know, we maybe, could talk about each boss. of the deaths. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but but uh, so she was the uh, she uh, was the uh, what would you she was the righteous of of the pair. Um, yes, very and a little too righteous. A <laughs> little bit too righteous. That it made for sort of a rush, uh, uh, a rough marriage for uh, her with her young Henry Dascoin. But they had uh, you know she kept him from drinking. She kept him from going to pubs. She kept him from doing a whole lot of things other than taking a lot of pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in her sorrow, as she recovered from his from mourning his death, uh, she became the uh, target of uh, Dennis Price's affections. Yeah, she, she comes across, she has a, a good sense of that virtuousness that, uh, that plays so nicely in this film. And then we get, of course, to... Uh, the namesake of our series, Sir Alec Guinness, who plays all of the Descoins. How does he? Uh, how does he hit you? I, it, you know, he is just so much fun to watch. I mean, he. Uh, I, you know, we started this particular series because this is a guy who, unfortunately, I mean, I say that as a huge fan of Star Wars. I love the films, um, but it is unfortunate that so few people know who he is outside of uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. And going back to these early films, and you just see what he's doing. I mean, here he's got these eight roles. They're they're each relatively uh, well. Some of them are very short, very small roles, but he creates these eight characters. He just gets into them. Whether they, he hunches a little bit more, or he changes his voice a little bit more, or the way the makeup's applied, or just the way his mannerisms are, he creates such great characters for all these eight characters. They feel so completely different, even. Even though at the heart you can you know they're clearly him 
um, the way that he goes from uh, kind of the the foppish photographer you were talking about to the reverend, kind of the old and and withered reverend, to the uh, to the the suffragette who and the way that she holds herself so high and just marches around and everything. I mean, it's fantastic. All of them are so different, and and this is, I think, such a great way to kick off this series, looking at just oh, just this wide swath of of um, acting prowess that Alec Guinness has in creating such amazing uh, and exciting characters in one film. Absolutely agree. It's the perfect blend of of charm, goof, and just general comedic breadth uh, in this film. It's just a great sort of reintroduction to Alec Guinness. Um, you know, so I, I think that we should talk about your favorite uh, murder. My favorite murder. That's really the that's the whole purpose here is that um, you know he goes around he's he's killing all these guys to knock them off the family tree so that he can be the lord and he does so in uh, he does so in some really clever ways. I don't know. I mean, I think the photographer is is my favorite. I, I don't know. There's something just about that one that I mean, I feel so bad about it, but um, uh, but I really just enjoy the way he sets that whole thing up and the way that he does such a good job of distracting uh you know the, the photographer's wife while he's blowing himself up until he kind of casually points out the smoke coming from the <laughs> other side of the wall oh they're burning leaves this, you know that whole thing is that great. was that was going to be mine for that very reason i think the the delivery of that particular murder is is really spot on perfect the the humor that just the slow burn so to speak of the humor when we hear the boom in the background but she doesn't notice it right, right. uh is is just so perfect but because you already took that one uh i will say um the uh, the reverend uh if only for the bit where the reverend actually asks louis who is pretending to be a visiting uh, uh scholar bishop. bishop right uh to speak in a language that he does not speak. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and he ends up making these, uh, these after trying to say, I, I, really, it's not the time. It's not that great. It's, I lost the language. He ends up just making these guttural noises that have me rolling, rolling <laughs> with laughter. It is just perfect. The murder itself ends up being just kind of a, a subtle poisoning, and he goes to sleep. But uh, but the setup, I think, is really quite good. Um, the admiral goes down with his ship. That's very brief. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else? I would yeah. say the other one that I really enjoy, Lady even Agatha. It's not, well, I, I love that one, but the other one that I really enjoy is the. It's not even a murder, <laughs> but it's just the way that it plays out. Is when his boss. Uh, I can't remember. He's just one of the the, the banker, Lord the banker, Desker. Yeah. right? He um, the way that that plays, where when he finds out that he has all of a sudden become the uh, become the duke because everyone ahead of him basically has died or next in succession, um, he has a heart attack and dies. But the way they set that up is you're at a funeral watching the one who just died, and then the voiceover kicks in and it talks about how he died. And then as he hits that line, you see the second coffin come in right behind. <laughs> it's just like it's a great way to just kind of just speed things along, but just also is a way that you weren't expecting at all. And I had such a great t- laugh when. And that second coffin popped into the frame. <laughs> Truly, it was just really <laughs> wonderful setup. Now, I, you know, we should talk uh, about the uh, the 
cinematography, the camera work in this film, only because, you know, there are some, it, it's an interesting bit of trickery to to do, particularly the sequences where you have, and there are a couple of sequences where we have two um, Baskoins or more on screen at the same time. The big one is obviously in church, uh, right. as we have all, I, I think at that point we have only six Daskoins on or screen the at the same right. time, one of the funerals. Um, uh, the, the, um, uh, the cinematography was done by, uh, Douglas Slocum. Good old Dougie Slocum. Yep. We've been here before. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, on the other end of his career. Right. <laughs> that was unreal. That is an unreal discovery for me. I completely agree. Uh, we, this of course hits, uh, Kindhorts and Coordinates, 1949. He started working, it looks like, uh, with shorts and documentaries in 1940. So he was, he was still fairly new in, in the game. And the last time we talked about him was, goodness, seriously, three years ago? At the beginning. When we did uh, our Indiana Jones series. He did Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, Last Crusade. That is crazy. Bananas. So what'd you think? Did he mature? I, 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 did he mature over the <laughs> over the <laughs> fifty years? Well, I you know there's something that's just great about black and white cinematography, and for a dark uh, satire like this, I, I you could have played around with it quite a bit. I don't think he he goes that way, kind of trying to create this this darkness or anything like that. But what he does is just create this uh, this just rich world that I think it has the right tone for the 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 richness of the uh, of the uh, Dascoin family and also of the this uh, just the regular world that um, that Louis is living in. And I think he just he captures it all very nicely. I think so too, and I think Ed, you know capturing. Uh, and making it feel like a very natural transition between the real world, you know, the world of commerce downtown working in the underwear store, to going out to the Chalfont, uh, you know, estate, uh, where we see the castle, uh, right in the and we always that when we're introduced to the castle, it's always from such a distance that that we see, you know, we see Louis on a paid tour of it, you know, he's walking on the gate with a bunch of right. tourists, which I find really amusing. Uh, and it's a, it's it, they always end up there. There's just some wonderful stills of uh, that that you can grab from this film of of Louis standing with his back to the camera, looking out over the you know under a tree with a tree frame right, uh, looking out over the sort of the moat of this castle. And it's just a uh, there's some really striking um, uh, striking framings in this movie. It's done really, yeah. really well. Talk a little bit about how he captured some of the, um, you know, because there, he did the whole black plate thing to capture all six of the um, of the Dascoin Guinnesses on screen at once. It's uh, well, it's just a, a camera technique where they would film with um, oh, Alec Guinness in one spot, and they would have a black plate over, essentially over the the film, so that it's not letting any light in, and then then when they captured that they'd back the film up change the position of the plate and keep doing it and as it shifted they would have alec guinness in the next spot and then the next spot i mean it's the kind of the same thing they did with Haley mills in uh you know uh, the freaky friday and things like that um 
but it's it's a it's a great technique that uh, I I think allowed them to really play around with this sort of thing where you could use that Hollywood magic or that film that movie magic uh, since this is Britain and uh, uh, just this the fun movie magic and actually allow. Uh, all these different Alec Guinnesses and all these different iterations to be on screen at the same time. Uh, word is, uh, and I, I, I wasn't there, uh, but the rumor is, as it is written, uh, Slocum slept with the camera over overnight to ensure mm. that it wouldn't move, that no one bumped it. Very dedicated. Very dedicated camera operator right there. Absolutely. Uh all right. Who else is uh, interesting to you? I I think there's a uh, a few uh, people. Well, one um, we should mention uh, Robert Hammer, the director. Yes. Um, uh, he certainly is an interesting guy. From what I read, he was a little bit of the uh, the wild card at Ealing Studios, who would uh, kind of come in there and. Um, uh, was not necessarily always the one to follow the rules. Ealing Studios uh, would make these 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 uh, wonderfully like comedies and, and uh, all sorts of stuff. And and uh, Robert was a little more um, you know trying to to push the bounds and stuff. And this film certainly uh, was that. It was a lot darker than uh, than uh, the folks at Ealing, particularly Michael uh, Balkan, the uh, the uh, producer at the time at uh, at Ealing. Um, who is behind these films more than he was expecting it to be um, more uh, a little sexually uh, charged than he was uh, than they were expecting it to be certainly with the uh, the uh, um, all the uh, affairs going on that uh, but Hammer really felt this was the story that he wanted to tell and and he got it told and you know they I think he did the right thing with it but uh, um, he's a director who actually started out editing with uh with Hitchcock actually and um and working as a as an editing assistant and then started editing with uh, Jamaica Inn with Hitchcock and um you know he's uh he ended up uh, I think he ended up having quite a drinking problem toward the end of his career and and faded out unfortunately but I think he was oh and he also had a problem he was uh homosexual and this was I mean Anyone who's seen the Imitation Game knows uh, how England uh, felt about homosexuals back in these days, and he, you know, hit it. He had an alcohol problem, uh, probably partially because of it, and his career kind of crumbled toward the end in uh, after 1960, and that was kind of the end of it, which is unfortunate because I think he brought a lot to the table with this film. I think it was a very interesting story, and it was a bold story. I think it feels very modern uh, by today's standards. It's sort of why these Ealing comedies, for some reason, kind of hold up better. And and maybe it is, as as John mentioned in, in our brief interview with him, why uh, it, it's sort of that British humor that has a little bit more uh, staying power uh, yeah. than some other brands of slapstick. They're so far advanced. That was an interesting era of these these Ealing comedies, right? That that era between the late 40s and late 50s, uh, where Ealing Studios really just created sort sort of a gestalt around this style of comedy. You know much about where they where they came from there? Uh, well, Ealing definitely. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a big name um, in the film world. I mean, Ealing, I believe, it's a hundred year old studio. Yeah, I believe it's it is the oldest continuously working studio facility for film production in the world. Yeah. Um it's just been around for a 
heck of a long time. Um, I mean, Shaun of the Dead filmed some of its stuff there. I mean, it's, you know, it's just been around for a long time. Um, a number of different people have headed it up. At the time that uh, that we're looking at it, it was uh, a man by the name of, as I mentioned, Michael Balkin, who um, was producing the films there. And I think they were turning out about six films a year. And uh, just trying to turn out just a, a solid variety of stuff. And I, I think that... Um, he just really hit it very well in this period where they just started cranking out stuff that was really working and just a lot of, a lot of great films ended up coming out of here. And, uh, you know, he was kind of, uh, he was kind of, uh, behind all of it and, and, uh, made a lot of great stuff happen. They did, um, dead of night, which was a, um, uh, a great little, um, a horror anthology film that came out in 1945 that uh, that I love. I think it's just a one of the one of the greats. And actually, uh, um, Hammer directed one of the stories in that. And um, and he produced like all of uh, most of these films that we're going to be talking about um, from this period. I mean, he uh, he was behind them. He was kind of the guy who was pushing them to make it happen. So uh, you know, he was a very key part of the Ealing Studios back uh, back at that time. I mean, the same year they uh, that Kind Hearts and Coronets came out, they also did Eureka Stockade, Passport to Pimlico, Whiskey Galore, Train of Events, and A Run for Your Money. So, I mean, you know, it's, it was a busy place. They were just cranking stuff out. One note before we jump away from Michael Balkin okay. um, that I thought was very interesting, just kind of reading up on him. Um, he actually um, had two children with... Um, uh, I believe it was his uh, wife, Eileen Frieda Leatherman. And uh, um, his son-in-law, uh, his daughter Jill, uh, married uh, son-in-law Cecil Day-Lewis. And Michael Balkin is uh, grandfather to Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis. Day-Lewis. I know. Is that out. Small world. Getting smaller. Okay, now can we talk about the hangman? Yes. Miles Malson. Great hangman. Great, great, great I hangman. I don't know if that's something you normally want to say about hangman. <laughs> he is a great hangman, and he has been in a boatload of stuff. Uh, not not the least of which, The Man in the White Suit. Uh, but he's done, uh, oh, my goodness, he has been working for many, many years. First film in 1921, The Headmaster. Uh, last film when he died, uh, You Must Be Joking, 1965. 133 wow. credits for Miles Mallison. Um, a, a wonderfully charismatic face. You know, this is one of those films where they uh, they write the parts for these bit players, uh, bit characters really well, and then they find the right people to play them. And he just worked perfectly as a hangman. Absolutely, absolutely. Wonderfully funny uh, way to introduce the film uh, and to close the film uh, as well, he ends up reading... <laughs> Reading and a bit so, of poetry. Right. Well, and he's so British. I mean, that's what's great is, I mean, the way that, uh, you know, as he's uh, initially leaving, he's like, oh, do I address him as as uh, as your highness or your grace? It's like, oh, your grace. And then you see him practicing your grace. As it's he like, walks around the guy, corner. This, this is a guy he's going to hang. And here he is, you know, making sure that he's doing his address properly. And right. <laughs> oh, it's just great. I just love really it. really wonderful. Um, let's see. Anybody else on your list? Um, uh, 
No, I think that was it. Just uh, looking at the, um, let's see, the screenplay Robert Hammer wrote with John Dighton, who uh, John Dighton also um, is just one of these people. He, uh, you know, Ealing Studios had hired him. After, I mean, he had already done a bunch of other stuff, but he ended up, you know, working, collaborating on a lot of these scripts. This one, Man in the White Suit, uh, which he uh, was nominated for an Oscar for. Um, he also was nominated for writing Roman Holiday, which is a, a very popular film. So, uh, yeah, somebody who really kind of gets that uh, gets that uh, vibe of storytelling. Mm. How did the film do? Did it do pretty well when it came out? What would you find? Uh, you know, I actually could not find anything about this. I have a feeling, you know, some of these British films, it is just so hard to uh so hard to track down the statistics about uh how it did financially, um even what the budget was. I couldn't find anything. Did you find anything? Not a thing. Yeah. Not a not a sausage. Not a sausage. No. Uh with no, I mean I I did see that it was received well critically. I saw that the critics uh generally enjoyed it. I, so I guess I just sort of live with hope that the finances support my belief that it should do well, should have done well. How about that? Me too. Uh, that's great. That sounds great. So if you were to say, if you were to offer just one reason, somebody comes up to you in an elevator and says, hey, what movie should I watch tonight? And you have this one on the brain. What's the one big reason that you think they should watch this film? Uh, the one reason is, um, well, I mean, I feel like I would want to say Alec Guinness to, to, you know, get a sense of, who Alec Guinness is and what he could do outside of playing Obi-Wan Kenobi. That, I, I, that is also my one reason, I think. This is, it is such a classic charmer, and it holds up as great fun for a broad audience. I'm, again, you know, I can't believe my daughter laughed at this film and talks about it now, weeks after we've watched it. Uh, but for me, it really, if there is one reason to catch this film, it is to get this reintroduction to Alec Guinness as just such a fine character comedian uh, with a range so far beyond uh, Obi-Wan. So it's like, you know, you see it for old Ben, but you love it for the classic uh, British hijinks. Absolutely. That's the deal. There is a really funny, you know, as I was schlocking sh- around YouTube for it, interviews, I uh, there came across a, one of the one of the rare uh, interviews that Alec Guinness did uh, with David Letterman. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like 12 minutes, and, and he was hawking his book. Right, so he mm-hmm. had to go out and do these TV interviews, and this was, and so he talks a little bit about, uh, um, you know, uh, about his early days and the people that he hung out with, and then, uh, he, you know, he talks about George Lucas, and he he says, um, you know, I, I I had just come off of Murder by Death, uh, another film that we're going to be talking about in this series, mm-hmm. and he says I right. get this I get this uh, script, and and it's from for Star Wars and I read it and I thought god the dialogue is really not good. <laughs> uh, but apart from that, it was a total page turner. It was science fiction. I thought I hate science fiction. The dialogue's terrible and yet I turned every page and I read to the very end and that doesn't happen very often. And so uh he took the film and then Letterman asks him uh you know, he says what's it like to have your character associated with the line? the line from the movie that will be associated with the people forever and ever. Amen. And his eyes just sort of glaze over (laughs) as Letterman says, will you do it for us? Guinness is so annoyed, so annoyed (laughs) that he's been asked to do may the force be with you one more time. It's really worth watching. I'll put a link. That is so funny. That is great. All right. 
poor man. I think we should rank it. Let's do it. Head on over to Flickchart, everybody. Flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can see our list of top films, hundreds upon hundred of films that we have ranked over the years, and see if our top films stack up with your top films. And let's see if this one breaks the top 81. <laughs> top 81. All right, <laughs> let's see. Kind Hearts and Coronets or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, already it's tough. Yep, isn't it? yep, 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 yep. I uh, I'm gonna have to say, oh brother, <laughs> yeah, me too. That's too bad. All right, kind hearts and coronets, or the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Kind hearts and coronets. I agree. Kind hearts and coronets, or a fistful of dollars. I'm gonna say kind hearts and coronets on this one. I am too. Really. I I'm surprised. I myself. thought we were gonna duke this one out. <laughs> nope, not on this one. But maybe this one. Kind hearts and coronets or big fish. Big fish. I would do kind hearts and coronets. How how badly? Well, I I think pretty strongly. You know, I'm a pretty big big fish fan. I know you are. Don't make me call John August. I will I will call him right now and get him on this call. <laughs> I think we're going to have to do it. Let's do it. Ready? Okay, ready? One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. Kind of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think let's, rock takes let's, that. No, we're going to do that one more time. Come on. I was going to, because I was looking at my notes and I saw Obi-Wan Kenobi. I was going to say rock versus Obi-Wan Kenobi. And everybody oh. knows that Obi-Wan wins over rock. Oh, I see. I see. All right, Ready? let's try it again. One, one, two, two three. Scissors. Rock. Yes. You <laughs> totally cheated. I'll give it to you, but you're a cheat. All right. All you right. Dirty desk coin. <laughs> yep. That's right. One percent over here. <laughs> kind hearts and coronets, or the asphalt jungle. Little John Houston. Jeez. That's a tough one. I think I'm going to say Kind Hearts and Coronets on this one. Yeah, I think I am too. Kind Hearts and Coronets or everybody's favorite, Knowing. (laughs) Please, Kind Hearts and Coronets. Do we even have to do it? Uh, I'll give you Kind Hearts on this one. (laughs) Oh, you're so generous. I am, I am. Kind Hearts and Coronets or De Palma's Carrie. Kind hearts and coronets. Hmm. Really? Yeah. I feel like I would go with Carrie, but I'm kind of torn a little bit. So I guess I'll I'll give you kind hearts on this one. I like that the the this is the Spanish poster for kind hearts and coronets, and it's called Ocho Sentencias de Muerte. (laughs) Eight death sentences. (laughs) I love that. Take that one just for the poster. That's so much better than the way it, than the original <laughs> title. That's terrible. All right, what were we ta- over eighty one? Yeah, it didn't break the top eighty one, but it is number eighty four. No so way. It got, it's got That's pretty close. Pretty close. Eighty four out of one hundred sixty six movies. Nice job. Yeah. K H A C. Well, that's great. Uh, and so, where do we go? Pray tell. 
from Kind Hearts and Cornets. Well, we're going to uh, be hanging out with Ealing for a little bit longer. We're going to do the Lavender Hill Mob. Lavender Hill Mob. Excellent. I'm having such fun with this series, I'm telling you. This is a great idea. I am loving it. I, uh, I, this is one where I know I've seen Kind Hearts and Cornets before and The Man in the White Suit. I, I can't remember if I've seen Lavender Hill Mob before or not. I feel like I have, but I don't remember a thing about it. So I'm actually quite looking forward to this one. Excellent. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Of course, all of this leads up to my favorite, Murder by Death. Which I still haven't seen. Can't wait. I know, I'm looking forward to it. Me too. In the meantime, I gotta go to bed. Alright. I've got some uh, family members I need to go deal with. Alright, seriously, that's horrible. Because of the movie we just did, and the fact that the trailer was about Christian Longo. That creeps me out. <laughs> I'm going to go first. No, you should go first. I went first on the trailers. You go first. Oh, all right, all right. Uh, This is uh, by Brilliant Barbara, Barbara's Views. She's created a whole thing. Do you see that? Wow. I know. She's like got an Amazon niche. She does. I know. I wonder. I, I don't know the rest of Barbara's Views, but this is her view on this. Oldie and sometimes moldy. Hmm. The acting is brilliant, but the film moves slow. Some of the language was okay in its day, but not acceptable today. And I don't mean swear words. I think we know what she's meaning there, Pete. It's worth seeing to see Alec Guinness play eight different parts. So, Barbara's (laughs) views are rather short. Rather short. short. They're short. Mine is actually uh, another uh, actual niche on Amazon, a customer. Uh, has written, <laughs> we've seen a lot of a customer's work. Uh, mm-hmm. Witty serial killer's autobiography, writes a customer. Louis Manzini, sitting on death row in 19th century England, waiting on his execution the following morning. The prison ward is astounded over Manzini's calm behavior. Before the execution, as Manzini, Mazzini begins to tell his life's account, he was born a son of a father who died at the first sight of him and a mother who married his father who was below her social rank and was disowned by the Descoin family as a result. Kind Hearts and Coronets is a extremely witty story with very dry, very dry, dark humor combined with the mind of a serial killer that pulls at the facial facial muscles of the audience numerous times. Now, generally, that's not a terribly entertaining uh, thing, but I find myself laughing hard at that last line about the serial killer that pulls on people's facial muscles, muscles <laughs> numerous times. What a way to die. What, how did he kill him? How did he, he kill pulled him? On his it, facial he muscles. pulled on his facial, oh. facial muscles numerous times. Get it? It's funnier when I explain it. The whole thing was that Brett Easton Ellis would be there signing autographs. He could chill up. So there are all these people just hovering around like waiting to meet Brett Easton Ellis. And then the night just kept going and it became clear. Like, I don't think you... I don't think he's going to show up. <laughs> Speaking of musicals, we just made that comment that uh, uh, that uh, one of the films we talked about 
briefly uh, earlier in the show is a true story coming up from Rupert Gould, who actually directed the musical of American Psycho. Rupert Gould is actually one of the directors who's currently reading our show. Really? So there oh, you go. Yeah. It's the circle you guys of hear life. A really crazy story? Please. Just, you talk about circle of life. Check this out. So when I was 13, I was obsessed with skiing. It was all I did, and I just poured over Skiing Magazine, which was my favorite. And there was a, uh, a monthly article that would come out in Skiing Magazine called Alpine Circus written by this guy who traveled all over the world and skied just the craziest stuff. And he was just a great writer and a great adventure. His name was Michael Finkel. And I had a class project. <laughs> you have to interview the person who has your dream job. It gets better, guys. Interview the per- Track down the person who has your dream job. Interview them. This was a class assignment in eighth grade. I called the editors of Skiing Magazine, got Finkel's number in Bozeman, Montana, and called them. During the NBA finals in, I think, 1997 or something. And, uh, and interviewed him over the phone. And he talked to me and told me about being a journalist and told me about journalistic rigor and how important it was and told me about his travels. And it was great. And I've always wondered ever since, like, I wonder what Michael Finkel has been up to. And apparently he's been up to a lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Back me up, Chad. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.